You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. In the world, you have to get rid of one of these things. All right. It'll no longer exist. You get to determine which one goes away. All right. French toast. Pancakes. French. French. You haven't even heard the the other choices. The French. (laughs) French toast. The French people. Waffles or pancakes. French toast, waffles, or pancakes? You have to you have to lose one of those. There's just those three things? Those are the three. You've got to lose one. It's obviously French toast. Well, no, that's the best one. It's obviously French toast. It's, so, it's not nearly versatile enough. No, it's got egg on it. It's cooked in egg. You asked for you my put, opinion. You put powdered sugar on it. You could put all kinds of... It's stuff. obviously French toast. No, it's not obviously French okay, toast. Okay, here's how you know. Here's here's And this is all I got to say. Uh, let's hear it. There are because there's a better answer. There are national restaurant chains dedicated to both waffles and pancakes. And ain't nobody care about French (laughs) toast. That's all you got to (laughs) know. Well, well, okay. so clearly it's not the waffle. I mean, like Belgium has this whole thing, like the Belgian waffle. They made a whole thing about it. It can't be the waffle. I think you got to go with the, the waffles different you're gonna you're gonna kick out pancakes i'm gonna kick out pancakes crazy no french toast is is superior to pan i'd rather have french toast any, i'll eat a french toast without sugar or syrup or anything i'll just, just straight out bread just, it's bread but it's also got butter and egg on it it's better better than a pancake what? i don't care yeah i don't know that the, the validity of your argument holds up just because there's a I think that says a lot that sell that build their brand on pancakes. I think that says a lot. Think about all the great food items they have changed dedicated just to that food. Hot dogs, tacos, pizza, burgers, pancakes, waffles, French to Oh wait, no. You want that to be an elite tier I, food? I would, kick, and- I would kick out the pancake and I would swap it out with cinnamon rolls. Clearly Gee, a superior food. Okay. It's clearly superior to French toast because there's an entire restaurant chain based on cinnamon rolls. Yes. Cinnabon. Yes. You got, you can't, there's no getting out of this one. French toast is boring. It's lame. It's often wrongly made. I'll I'll grant you that. You get it and it doesn't taste right because nobody knows how to make it. That's true. And then it's it's a disappointment. So People try and do it with different breads too. Yeah, they try to do, I don't know what the right bread is. But I've had it with the wrong. I know what the wrong breads are. What's the wrong bread? The wrong bread is whatever I had two weeks ago when I was having brunch someplace in Fort Worth. I don't want to name any names. Ordered French toast because I thought it was going to be fun and tasty, and it was it. It was so. Did they not, try and do it with like sourdough or something. Yeah, something they, like that. Yeah, they shouldn't be. Creative. It was like just not. Use bread. It wasn't. It wasn't moist. Right. It was just. It tasted like just a big loaf of bread with some sugar on it. It wasn't. Wasn't cooked right. Thank you for that wonderful that, that was icebreaker. My unsolvable question. I think I solved it. I don't know. Well, today we have an expert in solving decisions on the podcast today. Ooh, I like, Aaron, I like that you. segue. Aaron Bear. He is a strategic facilitator. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and he is also an Amazon number one best selling author 
He's the creator of Exponential Theory. He's worked with the leadership of major companies around the world like Google, Daimler, that's the group that owns Mercedes-Benz, uh, Coca-Cola, and Belfius Bank. We talked with Aaron about a lot. We talked about being paralyzed to make a decision, making decisions without knowing you're making decisions, uh, how curiosity is the key to making group choices, decisions that initiate forward movement and linear versus exponential thinking and decision-making. This is uh, one of the most insightful guests that we've had on the show. You're going to learn a lot from listening to Aaron. I definitely did. I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Aaron, thanks for being here, man. Hey, nice to meet you guys. We decided to bring on the expert uh, change agent so that we can help Sean with all the things he's got going on wrong. <laughs> we, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to facilitate a family matter here today, but yeah, yeah, I'm, this I'm up is, for the challenge. Apparently, this is an intervention. I'm just finding out about. So you you wrote you wrote a book about decision making, uh, exponential theory. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about about that. It's about the power of thinking big, and a, a lot of times, you know, you make a decision of a strategy that isn't necessarily going to accelerate a company, but it's to maintain a company. And I, and I have a whole process to kind of. What kind of decision is this? So decision making is built into it because most of the time today and at board boards of global 100 companies or small businesses, the decision is not to make a decision because they're paralyzed by information, by opinions, but they're not able to actually get into the decision and make a, a decision. Even family offices, I work with a lot of multi-billion dollar family offices that are just paralyzed to make a decision because of family dynamics. Um, you know, there's just all these information. So my goal as a facilitator is to get, you know, and there's, there's something called the collective wisdom or collective illusion. Um, you were talking about this collective wisdom that gets collected, but there's an illusion of what people will say is their opinion publicly versus what their real opinion is. And this, this obviously is exacerbated in politics, but um, it also is in every decision is like what we want to say to a group of people that our decision is very different than someone a CEO in his office saying, you know, this is the decision and putting it out. It's a very different decision than he's with a group of people, a board of directors or whatnot. So it's a matter of, you know, getting the public and private opinions uh, congruent. I, I'm curious, Aaron, what causes that kind of difference between a public and private decision? You know, I, I, I think we can all look at the politicians and say, I don't want to be that guy. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've all done that. Yeah, I know I've done that. Well, I, I think it's it's just a matter of perception is that we, we often judge a group and think of what they would be as acceptable behavior. And yet our biases are deeply enrooted in epigenetics and they come out when it actually makes our private decision. We'll go along with a group to not stir up the pot, whether it's, you know, and this is the dangerous part of society we live in with social media, you know, creating extreme opinions on on every side of the equation you know, all of a sudden you have groups of people going along with decisions that they would have never, you know, they would have thought through it and said they would have made their own opinion. But now they're just like, I'm too tired and exhausted from all this information. I'm just going to go. And, you know, whether you believe in a far, you know, conservative or Trump or Republican or Tea Party or whatever it is, you're just like, I'm those are that's the decision I made, which is a pretty lazy way to go through life. But that's what we're doing today. 
even by the people we're surrounded or social media feed that feeds us, um, it makes us inactive to say this is the public persona. So all of a sudden, when you get into a boardroom or a family office and you want to make a decision, um, all those things are coming into this decision. And that's where there's a there's a couple book, one called Collective Illusions by um, David Rose and another one called Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. Two very, very good books that I always recommend to leaders because they really look at this these social problems. One, the collective illusion we just talked about. The second is empathy is in this this. I think he, he started this argument because, you know, everyone says the world needs more empathy. Um, but what empathy is, is it's a story about an individual that all of a sudden you'll make a decision on behalf of one individual against the collective, you know, group of people or a group or the world. And it's because you start to feel for that. So empathy in itself has biases in it that are ingrained into how we feel about certain people and certain things. So it's, it's more about getting to what you'd call rational compassion, where you can actually synthesize, you know, the empathy for maybe a situation, but then start to look at all the different shareholders or all the different people involved uh, in that decision. And that's in my book, I have something, I'm sure you guys have heard of the golden rule, right? The, of course. Yeah. Sure. So have you heard of the platinum rule? No, no. Okay. The platinum rule is treat others as they want to be treated, which I think today we're starting to see that demanding is not treat others as you want to be treated. And then yeah. beyond the platinum rule in the, in, in my book is uh, the rhodium rule, which is to think about the entire ecosystem because so much leaders today are making decisions or not making decisions with a lot of unintended consequences of that. And I think that's where, you know, all of a sudden we have a ripple effect, you know, and this, this is happening in politics. It's happening in every company in, in America down to small businesses where the indecision actually has consequences. Of course. And in a world yeah. that is accelerating and change, we have to speed up our decisions and we have to be willing to make more mistakes. And, you know, the reality is we have to avoid cancel culture. We have to understand that we learn from our mistakes and keep moving forward. And I think that's a part of society that, we really have to get over right now is to have some compassion for people that they're learning because everyone on their, is on a different journey and has a different set of biases and, you know, family histories and everything. We didn't choose our families. We didn't choose where we grew up. We didn't choose our, you know, a lot of times our religion or our race or any of those things. Mm -hmm. It's just how can we actually evolve so that we actually start thinking about all people uh, when we're making decisions, not just thinking about our people or our tribe and those kind of things, which you see often politically, religiously, you know, you can you can name the different subjects, but all those alter our decisions because publicly and privately, we feel differently of what we'll say publicly than what we'll say privately. And you see it in the vote and politics, um, but you also see it in a boardroom of a global 100 company that it, I've spent time in Tel Aviv with uh, board of directors of a global car maker. And you'll see they all come from different paths and they all have very different opinions on how it should happen. And what happens is it paralyzes. It's like, well, you know, let's just talk about it some more and we'll make a decision. But with the whole world passing those companies by growing exponentially, uh, now you see those cars literally driving, you know, you see that car company driving those cars off the cliff, which was my role to come in and say, hey, you know, galvanize a decision because there's all these exponential companies that are, that are, that are aimed for you. Your indecision is a decision that actually affects hundreds of thousands of jobs. And now we're seeing that as those car makers are laying off those people and, you know, candidly, even making multi-billion dollar decisions. I was, you know, in a fortunate enough to be in Seattle with a, 
the two right people in the company. One person was the chief of staff, the CEO, and a, another person who was um, a head of all production. And they were about to make a $14 billion as car makers build, you know, off of seven year runs of cars. So they, they build the whole, you know, the assembly line and they're about to invest in it for combustion engines. This was only a couple of years ago um, where we clearly there were signs that it, electric vehicles were starting to be in demand and, and wanted. But <laughs> yeah. um, so we literally got a decision where they figured a way out to make a minimal investment to keep things moving. Uh, but obviously transferred electric vehicles is om almost every car on this car company on this planet has been in that transition and, and figuring out how to compete where they don't know how to compete and they have a far inferior. Technology. So they were stuck. They weren't, they weren't going to, they weren't going to go into electric vehicles. I'm assuming that they recognized that even before speaking with you, that that was probably not the best outcome. Well, it is, but when you have a, a group of people that are, surrounded by good results and you got to think that the world the economy yeah. was buzzing along you know they were hitting their their seven to ten percent growth which is which is you know linear good growth for their company but there was companies growing 10x you know taking their market share and that's where you know they they finally had to recognize that we have to make a decision and that's really where we created the friction to make them make a decision because at the end of the day it, i i think my biggest job in facilitating any size of company is to help them make decisions for their future. And just understand is like, there will be mistakes. It's just how fast can you make decisions so you can iterate on those mistakes sure. to get to a model that works. You, you said something interesting there, friction to make a decision. I want to come back to that because that I have so many questions just on that comment. Yeah. You obviously have a ton of insight on decision-making uh, on a personal level and on a, you know, big company-wide in the boardroom level. How did you, what was your journey through life to gain this level of insight that can take you to the boardrooms of these top companies? Well, um, you know, my, my life's been largely in sales. I, I actually, you know, was early on, I think sales is the lifeblood of every company. So you're always, you know, yeah. galvanizing and championing a group of people to, to obviously, and, and I've created a whole process called the buyer funnel where I don't think you sell to anyone. I think that they buy. I think we're at a point of education and there's enough information out there that you really need to guide people, you know, with integrity and authenticity to say, is this the right solution? And, you know, you, you know, every sales process in the world is built on three different things, connect, question, and close. <laughs> and that's the same with every facilitation process that I've been, you know, for the last 15 years. Um, just because facilitating got me into the boardroom and, and got me into bigger decisions, was challenging myself, you know, to to really get into conversations that I could make a bigger and bigger impact. And it started with sales. I ended up being the um, CEO of the National Association of Sales Professionals. Um, was chairman of that. Uh, moved on after four years. During that time, I took every sales process there was, and then I started taking a lot of facilitation because I realized that. Decisions are rarely made by individuals um, when you get to big decisions. Um, so you have to get a group of people that generally have not the same interest whatsoever. When you talk about IT and marketing and the C-suite, they all have different budgets <laughs> and different reasons they'd want to use those things. Yeah. So it's to find out, and I, and I have a little model that I use, is really find out their personal reason for making a decision, which is most people, and I use this in facilitation as well as sales, 
is how do you actually relate to them personally? Like, what's this going to do for your career if we make this decision or don't? I need to know that. And then professionally, what's it, what's it going to professionally is really what it's going to do for your career or whatever. And then organizationally is really the last thing, which is what most salespeople and most facilitators just focus on that. But I've been with CEOs crying about what happened. You know, they literally have sat and bawled because of their their what happened to them when they were a seven year old child, that they're still making decisions. And that's where when you really look at the root of this, we're just the deja vu of living a life mostly of what we did from our, our childhood, you know, reliving that over and over. What were the decisions we would have made when we were a child? We actually do that. And I've seen this over and over again when when I work with different leaders is you have to get to these kind of root conversations so that they can understand why are they making the decisions are, why are the biases and what are the things holding them back? You know, what somebody told them some limiting belief that they still live with. And some of the most powerful people in the world, you know, some of the exponential leaders in my book, you know, I've had conversations with and really get deep fairly quickly because they're very interested in this because for them, they're rarely ever challenged at this level. But at the end of the day, you can always think bigger and you can always obviously make decisions to, to get there faster. And today requires both of those things is to think bigger and make fat decisions faster, which is why I, you know, candidly have a, a lot of demand right now is getting out there and helping organizations think through that so that they can obviously see the future and be part of it instead of have other companies that are making decisions and growing faster uh, move by them. But my whole career kind of led into just one conversation to the next. And I always look to have a bigger conversation in the next conversation I had. So it would kind of unfolded to where I find myself in these boardrooms of these companies uh, around the world. You know, I, I agree with that. You know, when we look at decision-making there, there are those components, the, uh, the, the personal component, the professional component, the organizational impacts, the, uh, the discussion that you have with people, and this is really unique decision-making, is getting groups to make decisions. Uh, because I, I found that incredibly difficult. It, you, you really need a strong leader. You really need a sort of a basis. You have to give sort of everybody, here's the basis upon which we're going to make this decision if you're, if you're trying to get a collective. Do you, do you take people through a process to say, all right, here's how... Uh, collective decisions or group decisions ought to be made? Or are you trying to sort of break down uh, difficulties or barriers that they normally would have? In other words, like, let, let's create more vulnerability and trust, just generally kind of the, the trustful kind of stuff? Or do you saying, here's here's the process you want to go? That's, that's really what I'm wondering. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination. It's customized to each group. Each group's completely different. Um, you know, for the most part, I'm successful at the end of whatever time I am to get people to, and I always say action, not consensus. I mean, at the end of the day, that's a, you know, we're never going to get to consensus. We never, ever, none, us three, even you guys being father and son are never going to see the world the same way. You have a different set of experiences that brought you to the seat you're in. Um, but what I, what I do is I, I start to establish language at, at the end of the day, and this goes political. I work with some politicians on both sides. And, you know, the reality is most of it is just language of what, how we speak about something that keep causes the friction. And this will go to Sanger's comment about friction is friction can be good. Um, if we can redefine a term, and I even use this with my own wife, you know, let's not, let's not argue, let's create new meaning, meaning 
it's obvious if there's something that we're not understanding now that I need to understand it from your perspective and you need to create meaning for that of, of those words. So what do you want me to learn? And it really changes the dynamic where never, you know, we never argued, you know, it was, it really creates a, a, a co-relationship. The same with work relationships. When you get people in the boardroom um, or in a group offsite or a strategic planning session, it's, it's sometimes their turn to kind of, you know, get their initiatives on the table and get everybody behind it. But what you need to do is first debunk each of their languages. Like marketing has a different language than technology. Leadership has a different language because they talk to investors. You know, everybody has their own people that they're serving. And so all of a sudden is how do you create a baseline when we're talking about something? So I'm often like saying, well, how would you interpret that? And asking another group. And at the same time, I'm really bringing people into a conversation where they're making decisions. They just don't know they're making decisions. Okay. Now, now you got me. You, you, you're tricking them. <laughs> I knew there was some, I knew there was something in there because people, you go to a group, especially executives who, you know, in a bureaucratic environment and a big organization, they become experts at not making any changes, become experts at, you know, how do we slow shit down? It's, it's the safe bet in the old world. We, in the last five yeah. to 10 years, that actually is where death of the company. And we're, we're watching companies die because of that right there. And <clears throat> it's why we need to galvanize to make mistakes and make decisions and, and learn from those as quickly as possible. And that's where speeding up decisions is a big part of, you know, my presentation is just the speed of the world and that our brain's yeah. 10,000 years old. It has not adjusted. You know, we're now have inputs of 70 to hundred thousand pieces of information coming into our head. We actually see billions of information subconsciously. So we have all this stuff at our fingertips, but it really has paralyzed us because we were never made for this much information. And what, what basically happens is yeah. how do you bring it back down almost to a kindergarten? Like I used to teach in sales, like whatever you, whatever you need to learn in, in sales is you learned in kindergarten. Like you were an expert at it because you got anything you wanted. You know, you wanted the candy bar, you were persistent, determined, and you just kept asking and, you know, all those different things. And then we unwind that throughout our lives. It's like, don't talk to strangers and, you know, all these different things that adults have done, you know, to, to create these barriers. And then kids grow up hating sales, but they were the best salespeople ever. At least my kids were, I'm not sure if Sanger was when he was. <laughs> yeah. There. We knew all the tricks. Yeah. When you got what little. you wanted. And, and, and I think that's where, um, you know, just asking questions and being curious is, is probably one of the biggest opportunities. And that's what I do as a facilitator is I just ask questions because I, don't necessarily have to lead the conversation with questions is then I just engage the other people to really engage in that conversation. But the model I have just to kind of give you a, a little bit of a, for your, your listeners, a, a view, I'm sure you heard of VUCA, which was created by these Afghan generals at the Afghanistan war had generals in it. Um, this is back in 87 and they created this term VUCA because they didn't know who their enemy was. They didn't know who their friend was. They didn't know what they're fighting for. They're like, this is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So they created this whole term VUCA. It's, it's kind of now risen to be a term for, you know, current day society everywhere is, is like, what, what's going on here? So in it, there, there's a, a gentleman that created a, a process that took off that acronym is vision, understanding, clarity, and agility. And if you can take that model as a mental model and bring it into uh, any group, is we start to establish what is the common vision? 
And that's where you start to have this language, like these conversations that I led with is how do I actually break it down to where I understand each of your visions? And then how do I bring them together so that they're over line? And, and somehow I'll, I'll be candid on this. I don't know how I do it, but subconsciously I somehow weave this all together when I'm standing in the middle of a group and bringing them together and, you know, bringing words together where they can actually agree on. And then all of a sudden their visions start to merge together a little bit and they start to get some, you know, action. And they're like, they're, everybody's getting a little bit of what they want. Nobody's getting all of what they want, which is the, mm -hmm. the reality of decisions is there's no perfect decision ever. And in fact, no decision is not, is the worst decision in my mind, because we don't learn anything. And then I really teach the board, you know, you need to learn or win. You know, there is no failure here. At the end of the day, the failure is if we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So it's like, let's make decisions. And we're either going to win big because we're going to be thinking big or we're going to learn quickly and we're going to iterate on that. And that goes to that last uh, A of agility. So establishing a vision, getting everybody to understand that language, you know, those language barriers, which sometimes can be cultural, generational. There's all kinds of different things that come into a group of people that you have to kind of consider. And then providing the clarity is how do you actually organize that in a way that you get people to actually be able to say, yes, I'm on board. I want to move this. I'm very excited. And there is just like any kind of motivational coach is galvanizing people to see momentum and see that the group can move and make a decision. And if everybody makes it, it's a really easy decision. And that's where I say, we're not going for it. We're just going for action, not consensus. And then Honestly, it's the agility that that learner win mentality is, you know, we we really want to celebrate our failures. I have a whole chapter on this. Amazon's really good at this. Um, you know, their group that had one of the biggest flops ever, the Amazon phone, if you remember that. And most people don't. But it was a three hundred million dollar oh, bet. No, never flopped never in heard six of that. <laughs> Maybe there's a reason. But that same team then turned around and created Alexa. And Alexa now is the number one consumer product and that you would never think that a Amazon would lead the way in in the home in home <clears throat> products, but it led them to a multi billion dollar opportunity uh, and still Alexa is far above superior technology to Siri and Google and some of the others and and leads the way as far as adoption. So those are the kind of things is that they didn't take the team and say you failed. Sorry, you guys, you know, go find another job. You wasted a lot of our money. They said, you know, find something else. You learn something from this. What yeah. can you turn that into? And that's the so organization a, of the future. I'm, I'm nodding along with everything you're saying about fast decision-making, agile decision-making. I'm a little biased, Aaron. I took a disc assessment uh, like a week ago, and I took it a year ago, and I got a 99 on the D score, which, you know, driving, decision, quick decision-making, you know, being assertive. And, um, that for sure comes with a lot of downsides. Uh, they made sure to point out to me when they were facilitating my understanding of that assessment. Um, <laughs> I looked at it like, yeah, I won. Like I'm winning uh, yeah. first place, baby. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, you know, you, you're saying I, I it, it all resonates with me. It, it's very important to make confident, quick decisions. And it's increasingly more common what I don't know is why it's so much more important now than it was even 10 years ago. Well, it's, it's that we live in an, you know, and, and Sanger, I'm going to get you a book and you're going to read it because we live in an exponential world that is exponentially changing. So we cannot no longer, 
you know, if we go back to the 70s, you didn't have to make decisions because things didn't change very fast. In fact, the bureaucracy okay. really led the way. Now you have a group of individuals yeah. that have equal access to all the platforms and all the systems that the big companies do. So they're sitting in an accelerator or a garage or an incubator or we work, and they're thinking about how they could reinvent one part of your business. Well, there's a thousand of those wanting to reinvent every part of your business. So no longer can you stand on your size and your dominance and not make decisions. In small companies, it's the same way. There's a lot of small companies that never get there because they don't make the big decisions to go for it. They don't, they just play the safe bet. They create a lifestyle business. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, you know, yeah. that's Main Street America and entrepreneurs. And it's a great thing. It's just know that there's companies that they may have a hard time staying in business because there's someone down the street thinking bigger than they are. And they're likely to take their customers in a few years instead of a few mm. decades, which is how it used to be. So it's just a matter of the speed of the world when you look that we're connected globally and, you know, everyone in this world is, and I talk about it in the book, the network effect is, you know, there's, there's a rule that every time you add some of the network, you double the capacity. Well, we're now at 5 billion people into one network. Well, all of a sudden you now create a lot of power for these central companies that are like controlling access to that network. And that also, though, enables these small companies to really grow off of that if they're, they're really agile and they're really quick in their decisions and, you know, find the trends and move quickly. And that's where, you know, no longer the S&P 500 um, used to have an average lifespan of 65 years. This is uh, 30 some years ago. It's down to it was actually 67 years. It's down to 15 years now as a company spends on the S&P 500. So the, li the life cycle of companies is shrinking. And it's largely because of people not making decisions. It's no other thing because they can make decisions, you know, and a lot of them get taken over and merged down because they're shrinking or someone's buying market share or whatever. But um, those are generally not decisions that people are making. There's, they're, they're being made for them by the shareholders or someone else. So if your company's to, to stay alive, it's because you're being agile because everyone has the same vision, understanding and clarity. And that's a process that it's, it's an art. It's not a science. There's, there's no one way to do it. And it, you have to deal with a lot of people and people are messy. And the reality is the one thing I usually show when I give PowerPoints is I'm like, here's the strategy. And it's really this ball that's all wound up. And I'm like, you, you know, you got to make a lot of mistakes up here and then you start to figure it out. And then you start to get exponential, literally get exponential at the end because you got that vision, understanding and clarity. And now people are moving in the same direction. And when everybody's moving in the same direction, things happen fast. And that's what we're seeing when you go into an exponential company where I would take these people from these, you know, literally hundred billion dollar companies into companies that were hundred million. And you realized, oh, well, they're never gonna affect us. Well, yeah, but they're growing 10X. Next year, they're gonna be a billion dollar company. And the, year after that, they're going to be a $2 billion company. And all of a sudden, their market share actually hit, takes a hit for that. And they're like, oh, well, we should have paid more attention or, or whatnot. And so it's, it really is, you know, decisions are an important part of uh, making investments and everything. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different trends that you can make decisions, you can make bad decisions, but making no decision is, is, is worse than making a bad decision in my mind. Now, I think the public probably thinks differently. They want to cancel everyone that, uh, you know, makes a bad decision, but that is what it is. <laughs> no, you're totally right. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're in the minority in the belief it placing a premium on speed. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who, who feel like 
um, they want to avoid making a bad decision without recognizing that, that no decision is in fact a decision. It's a decision not to act. And while they're not acting, the world's moving past them. And I, I think it's particularly challenging for, um, groups and committees. And, and you know, you talked about, I, I was, uh, had a discussion this past week. I sold a business a couple of years ago and, uh, was doing some coaching with them afterwards. And we realized that there was some real friction in the decision-making and so it was curious to me, and what I had observed was, and I made this comment to them, I, I said, it looks like you guys have conflicting values, you know, so that one of the, there were four owners, and I said, you know, you guys are not on the same page. What we finally realized was that they were having difficulty making decisions because the values that I had had and, and the vision that I had written for the company, they were still operating on but they weren't aligned with those values and vision. It didn't make them bad. They were just different. And so they were making decisions based on the internal values that they had not cleared with each other. And so they had a different set of values among them, uh, hadn't agreed on the new values, and everybody was still sort of thinking they should have been making decisions based on the values that I had had or I had established for the company, you know, some 15 years prior. And so they were really having difficulty and it was creating a lot of friction on decision-making. I want to go back to, you were talking about linear decision-making versus exponential decision-making. Tell me the difference between those two. Well, I, I think just to add to your point there, Sean, about what you're saying is the, the values are, that's that that's getting that personal, professional, and organizational more aligned is understanding each person's mm-hmm. values and biases and where they come from is important to have real conversations. And I think, you know, oftentimes we, we, we shadow that, you know, and this just goes our own belief systems. And so far, you know, we have very divisive beliefs these days because of the world and nature of news and how we get it Um, is bringing those together to understand that they do affect just the simplest of decisions. And that leads into kind of your question about linear versus exponential. Our whole lives we lived, you know, I think it goes to Sanger's comment about like, what, why do we need to change? Well, you know, if you look back on your life, you know, you're going to look chronologically and you say a year ago, I did this and three years ago, I did this. And it's very much going to look like just progress year by year by year. Now, a lot of people live, you know, their life one year at a time. And, you know, they say I have 20 years experience, but they really have one year, 20 times. And that's the unacceptable part of not making decisions or moving forward to be exponential because exponential is about growth. So I call it the exponential mindset. And if you're going to shift, one, I'm sure you've talked a lot about the growth mindset on this podcast and heard a lot about, you know, hey, everyone needs a growth, not a fixed mindset, which is very linear. Um, but the growth mm-hmm. mindset to add to that is, you know, adding a positive attitude about the future because you got to think positively about your company or whatever decision, your investment you make. I mean, you shouldn't make it if, you're not, if, if you don't think positively about it. Um, you have to then have that growth mindset, you know, what is this going to, what are we going to have to do to really scale into this? And then you have to think big. And that's where the part that I can challenge people is if I asked, you know, where decidedly is going to be in, in five years, you know, you guys are loving what you're doing. Well, how do you grow at a hundred X? How, you know, how do you, you know, what is a hundred X to you? What is 10 X to you? And when you start trying that on, what does that mean? Well, obviously, it's probably a different experience and it's something that'll challenge your own brain to say, ah, I've always been thinking linear. I just know what I need to do this next year. And Bill Gates has a quote that I have in my book that people often overestimate 
what they'll do in one year, but mm-hmm. underestimate what they'll do in 10 yeah. years. And that's where I always like the people, I have a whole chapter about thinking long-term because if you think longer term, if you start thinking 10 years out, you can start to think exponential. And that goes, you know, I have a story in the book about Elon Musk that talks about, there's not many companies that are saying in 2040, they're going to land on Mars, right? So he has SpaceX. So I actually invented a, you know, a term called Mars shots because Google has moon shots. Well, Elon Musk was just like, I got to think bigger than that. I'm going to put, we're going to go to Mars in 2040. We're going to civilize it. Well, regardless if he ever gets there or not, (laughs) he's now shuttling, he's the largest private space company and shutting astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. He's already accomplished in a way a Mars shot, you know, much bigger than any ever privatized space. And he's starting to win the war on talent over NASA, which has historically been the best place to work on the planet. They have very low turnover because you have your very people that are working on the biggest things in the world. So all of a sudden, when you can start thinking bigger, one, you're going to sound really crazy to people around you that are not used to it. <laughs> and that's when you start thinking 10x or 100x. But yeah. I think once people, and, and I was with a company in Asheville, that's a real estate company, and uh, their CEO said, you know, I used to stand in front of our group and people just thought I was crazy. But then we started hitting our goals. And then all of a sudden they believe, <laughs> and now they're pushing me to create bigger goals. So we're accelerating faster. They're making decisions faster. So I'm part of coaching that organization and and really helping them think bigger. But, you know, their goal is now to be a Fortune 500 company. Um, They're a couple billion dollar real estate company, real estate holdings. And they literally want to, you know, really change the way this, this works. And they have a team now that thinks and believes it. All I can say is I would bet on the group that believes in something, a small group in the world has changed just about everything. And that's the part of galvanizing a group to think bigger. And that's that exponential mindset where you see it when you talk to people that think exponentially versus linearly. And that was kind of really inspired this book of exponential theory, which the theory really is, is once you start to think bigger, you become more conscious. And what that really means is you start to think about all the different stakeholders that are involved. That rhodium rule that I I talked about is thinking about the entire ecosystem. Um, when you do that, one, you start making more informed decisions. There's not unintended consequences. I don't want to point anybody out, but you know, we've had a couple presidents. It doesn't matter which side you believe in or whatever. They both have done this is really made decisions for a group of people, but not really cared about really the democracy or the, you know, the platform they represent. And I think what's important is not understanding that's the empathy that you have for the people that really support you or maybe look at like you or have the same religion or whatever it is. We have to get beyond that and really think about how do we think about all people? Because companies now on these platforms have to really think about all those different people as decision makers. Otherwise, they are going to they are going to suffer. They are going to be canceled in one way or another. And I think it's an important part of thinking bigger is to think more conscious. And that's really the theory, because I went in and out of all these exponential companies and I just saw that these CEOs that grew to be unicorns really quick or grew to be, and they were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. They just talked in a way, they had a language like this that was just, I was like, I need to learn this language. So I wrote a book about it to learn it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. So in 10 years, I should be leading an exponential company. If I haven't, I'm not growing. I'm not leading in the way that I want to. Right, Uh, right. And that's just part of my own exponential mindset and belief system is that I believe I'll do that now because I've wrote it into existence and I really believe that I'm on that path to get there. And literally writing it is key. I, I had a trouble 
thinking big um, until a few years ago, a friend of mine challenged me to write down my ideal day five years into the future. And it, I partly because she nudged me and partly because I nudged myself to write down some things that I really didn't think were achievable. I mean, they, I really thought ah, this is not going to happen within five years. I couldn't see it. I really couldn't see them happening. And I wrote a couple of things down that I remember very vividly. One of them was I woke up that morning on my ideal day and I gave an interview for CNBC. And then the other was that I, um, I woke up on a farm uh, 25 minutes from where I live right now uh, with, you know, a bunch, a lot of spacious land and, and animals and just it was something that I really wanted. I thought at the time, there's no way I'm getting on uh, TV in five years and there's no way I'm buying that farm in five years. Mm -hmm. And a year later, I was on Dr. Phil, uh, number one show on daytime. So even bigger than what I had imagined doing on CNBC. And then uh, just this past week, I am now under contract for that farm. And that's, I'm three years into this, not even three years into this five-year period. So I, you know, the power of thinking big, it impacted me. And as soon as I started to see those things happen, I was like, oh, okay, okay. So I was discounting everything that I thought was possible because I'm looking at what I can see right in front of me. All of my other friends who did that exercise, they're at the same place where they're halfway through their five years and they're already 90% complete with all of the monumental milestones that were within that ideal day that they foresaw. I, I had that, I had that same experience uh, when we, we moved our office about, <clears throat> oh, this was four years ago. And so I had the yeah. storage room where I'd put old files and notebooks and notes from conferences and all this stuff it was just, you know, full of stuff. And so I had to go through that and finally just clear it out. So, you know, I'm just throwing stuff out. I come across this old notebook and I, and I had a page just like what you had talked about. And I had done it 10 years prior. So it was 10 years old. Yeah. And it was, what, what do I want to do in 10 years? Where am I going to be in 10 years? It was that far. Yeah. But I had, never, I had just gotten lost in the shuffle over the years. And I looked at that and like nine of the 10 had happened. And some of the, rev, the revenue things were like almost spot on. Really? Yeah, it was amazing. Some of these things, and some of them were just pie in the sky things. Like I'd like to do this, and I'd like, and they had happened. And it's so I think there's a component. Imagine if we read those freaking papers <laughs> instead of the balling them up instead and of them just away. putting it in a storage room. All I had to do was write it down once, and I achieved it. Read it, that, right? I mean, yeah. Subconscious well, yeah, that's that's my point. Yeah, is is that it, it? There was a subconscious impact of writing it down that was powerful you know that i wasn't even aware of you know obviously subconscious i i had one just the to to follow your guys's point is i found a piece of paper in um it was about five years i put a date that i wanted to have uh, a girl don't ask me i don't even remember doing this but i put the date <laughs> april 30th 2008 i did this like in 2003 and I had a daughter on April 30th, 2008. I did not find it till wow. like 2009, 2010. And I looked at it and it freaked me out. I'm not, you know, the, oh, you know, the world works in mysterious ways, but I do, I do. It, it is all about, you know, I have this whole program called Exponential Mindset, Belief and Attitude that I help, you know, these leaders just create the mindset, belief and attitude to think bigger. And, 
you know, it's, it's amazing when people believe in themselves, what they can do. And I think so much of this world is we're doubting ourselves and that's why we don't make decisions Yeah, because we have fears and worries and anxieties and stress about the future. But the only time you can create the future is right now. And it's generally making a decision. And if it's a bad decision, it's good because you learn from it quickly and you can yeah. get over it. So it's, it's, it's getting people in that mindset to, to really grow and grow exponentially. And that's where Sanger, I would challenge you now and, and, and like Sean to do a 10 year one from today where you'll be in 10 years. And I want to be back on right, the I'll podcast in 10 years for you to tell us where you're at. I'll do it. Okay. I'll do it tonight. And the, um, cause and the reason I'm, I'm confidently saying I'll do it is because I don't want to. <laughs> because I hear you say that and I'm like, I don't want to think that far. Lean into the That's pain. That's too hard. That's no, I can't even conceptualize that. Oh shoot. Eat okay, well, I guess I gotta do it then. Eat your yeah. obstacles. All right. I'm committed to that. Uh, disclaimer, this does not work with uh lottery ticket winnings, investment performance, <laughs> or anything. <laughs> Certain things that this will not Oprah manifest for you. Aaron, I saw when I was I pulled up your bio the other day and I saw that you had developed this bridge forum. Yeah, I have a business partner, Alan A.P. Powell. He's a pretty influential African-American businessman. And in 2004, not 2004, 2014, we were you know, basically starting to see Baltimore and Ferguson and these, these uprisings. And what we, what we realized is there had to be a better solution um, than, than just really tearing up in the community. And so we created this forum and, and, you know, for most part, I'm a facilitator by profession, as you guys know. And so I created a facilitation process where I would take several police chiefs. We bring them together. We share best practices, but we'd also bring the community of wherever we were. If we were in Louisville or Indianapolis or Phoenix, Arizona, we actually took this around the country and, you know, created real dialogue, like what needs to change. And we were able to, in certain cities, one city in particular, we created 29 changes to how they policed. Um, because we got honest feedback and we really had deep conversations. Um, and this is that collective illusion. We were able to get past the public bias, you know, and that's where so much of, of everybody, there's a lot of rhetoric around, you know, blue lives, black lives. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's figuring out, you know, how do we create a better solution for, for everyone? Because we're putting everyone in harm's way. Um, where, you know, and we've actually got into this bridge forum where we've really got into it's a mental health, you know, pandemic. I mean, it's, it really is for police officers that are stressed going in and out of situations. They don't have time to process it. They have PTSD uh, to the extreme of probably more extreme than some of our veterans. Uh, and that's where we're seeing suicide rates of law enforcement and the pressure on them. And they're making, they're making mistakes. They're making, you know, they need more training. They need more mental health. Um, so this bridge forum really, you know, has a candid conversation uh, and we partnered with Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Executives, to really have this conversation across the country to really create change systemically. And it's begun to create that systemic change because at the end of the day, um, everybody wants safe families and safe neighborhoods and you know good places to live. It's good for everyone. It's figuring out how do you break those barriers down so that you can see the other side. And this is this goes, you know, this is that empathy that I talked about. It's really having the compassion to understand how can I solve these problems in a much better way instead of, you know, putting officers that are going in and out of situations that are already, you know, maybe they came out of a domestic violence and they get on their next, you know, their next 
incident or, you know, and they, they don't behave appropriately because they're really thinking about the last one. And that's what we really have recognized. And, you know, I've even worked with this company called Vitania that works with, um, you know, rebalancing the brain chemically and electrically. It's a really incredible program, but they're all about helping law enforcement really balance and they'll help all the, they've, they've lowered, you know, they've lowered their turnover and improved retention because so many officers were leaving, they aren't able to recruit them. You know, so you're, you, the problem gets worse when you put more and more gas on it. And that's what the media is. They're going to put more gas on both sides of those equation. And it's a combustion that's going to happen. So we, we wanted to get between that. We have a foundation called Arizona Foundation. And we wanted to get between that conversation to say, there's got to be a better way. Let's, let's get together. Again, everything we talked about at the start of this call of you know, establishing a vision, getting understanding, creating a common language, because so much of that was not common amongst a community and their law enforcement. Um, why do they do things? And, and why does the community react in a certain way? And having those breakouts where we would just, you know, have community leaders and different, and, you know, you know, oftentimes people would raise their voices and we would, we would bring it back to a civil, you know, really civil discourse, you know, having that conversation and say, how do we fix this? Because, it's a problem. If it's a problem for you, then it's a problem for us. And that's the you versus us. And then it's like, we can, we can solve this together. And so we started finding these issues and, you know, I, we actually wrote a book about it that, that circulated amongst uh, some of the police chiefs that here's 108 things that police officers do wrong that we found from, you know, thousands and thousands of community members giving feedback. And we said, here's, you know, here's some solutions for each one of them. And, you know, we were, part of some of the people in the white house that kind of rewrote some of the policies when, a, when, uh, so, President Obama so if you, you found 108 things, police officers were doing wrong that had to have been whittled down from more than that. So how many of those were, uh, just perceptions from the community that, yeah, that no, it was all from actually the weren't wrong. Yeah, it was, it, and it wasn't, I shouldn't have said just police officers, but it was really just how, the community and it, it both it's both sides. And that was part of the equation is both sides have to come to the table willing to solve the problem. You know, the, you know, and that's where it's finding those compromises and finding like ways to move forward because, you know, we're, you know, in some situations, in some cities, we were in a standstill. We were actually brought into those cities to kind of get them out of a standstill. So it's a heavy debate. I mean, it, you know, I lean in the very tough conversations and, you know, I come from this, this place of, you know, really understanding my own biases because I've done so much of this work and, and very open and transparent. Like I, you know, I grew up in the South side of Fort Wayne. I went to a high school is predominantly black. Um, it, it gave me a compassion that's probably different than people that grew up in the predominantly white suburbs it doesn't make me a different person. It just gave me a different set of values that allowed me to enter this conversation from a different perspective. It didn't it also discount that I'm, you know, I'm still a white man, you know, in a world that wants to solve a problem for the greater good of society. Um, that's where my, my business partner and I, you know, really kind of leaned into this conversation to kind of help, you know, you know, really break down the barriers because we had these, you know, different perspectives that we ourselves to kind of work through as, as individuals personally and professionally. And we said like, like, let's take these organizations and these community leaders and really, you know, part of it is it, it comes down to ignorance is if you can get people in the same room and they spend some time together, they find common bonds and they realize that we're all human and 
you know, it doesn't matter how different we think we are. We're all the same and we want the same things. And that's part of the conclusion of a lot of our bridges that we had was, oh my God, now they were exchanging phone numbers. And when something happened, they would call each other. And all of a sudden you were building bridges, you know, and that's the reason we called it the bridge forum is it's really just opening this communication and giving that new way of create, like, so you want to tell me something, let's, let's not yell at me and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what, what's the solution, you know, and getting people in solution mode is not easy when they're just used to, you know, basically, you know, yeah, they're at a point stuff. of high emotion. It's really easy to just point fingers. And, and that happens in relationships that happens in business partnerships happens in marriages. <laughs> well, you're just screwing up. Well, Hey man, <laughs> like that's not, I don't want to receive it that way. Uh, you know, I, it seems like a lot of the ways that we could interact more broadly community as citizens is to treat the community in the way that we would treat our spouse or a child or our friend. It, you know, if everyone knows, hey, if I go go up to my business partner, I say, hey, man, you're really screwing up. They're not going to respond well to that. They're not going to, oh, geez, what could I do better? No. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah, they're going to bow up. Yeah, yeah, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. I just, all I want you to know, Aaron, is how I feel. I'm not even asking you to change anything. I'm not asking, I'm not saying you did anything wrong. And I'm not even saying that you're necessarily responsible for my emotions. But when it comes to criticizing um, police officers or teachers or, or talking about any other political issue that involves large groups of people, we say, this is why y'all suck. <laughs> and we expect them to go, oh, well, geez, tell me more. I guess you're right. I guess we all suck. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and, that, and that goes both ways. And, and I think that had to have been incredibly challenging to facilitate a discussion uh, from two groups that, that probably were at, were at elevated emotional states that are really coming to wanting to have the same solution. We want, we want safe communities where there's not a lot of crime. Everybody can agree with that. But one of them sees, you know, uh, we, we want to do this. We want to take this action. We want to stop and frisk, for example, right? Because, hey, that works, gets guns off the street. And yet the other perspective says, hey, we really don't appreciate being violated like this just for walking down the street, you know? So come up with a different solution. And, and that had to have been incredibly difficult to come to some consensus on how those behaviors ought to be changed. Well, and again, uh, and still I never go get for to the same I go result. for action. So at the end of the day, okay. it's like, what's a better solution than what we're currently doing? And, and oftentimes there's, there's fiery opinions when you, you have this historical debate of, and this goes to language and structure of what, you know, even how you talk about, you know, what, what you just said, like pull over and frisk or these different things um, is like really talking about anew is what's a better way to do that. And hearing that from the community, but one of the ways that you can do it, that, that we were successful with our bridge forum, that, that bridge forum is also a bridge in a box. We'll, I will share it with any city or anybody that wants to do it. We have a whole process for it. Um, but we would literally have, and this goes to that, creating that uh, rational compassion, both for police officers and the community. So we would have panels separate where the police officers would share, you know, how they approach the situation and how they have, you know, really look at, you know, the world they work in and have to explain, you know, this is what I go through on a daily basis. So people actually hear and understand these officers and police chiefs and different people. We, we, would, we literally sometimes would get frontline officers in these conversations. And then we get front, the community members, you know, and different people that 
you know, and some had had family members die at the, you know, police hand. So you can imagine the high emotions of that. But when you start to have conversations and you realize that you can kind of create a, con- a common vision, you can start to break down barriers is that everybody wants that. You know, nobody wants to just argue forever. And I mean, there may be a few people in the world that just live in that reality that arguing is their comfort zone. But um, we were able to kind of get people past that to say, like, what what can we change? And can we be part of that change? And if the community does this, the police will do this, you know. And we had just interesting conversations that weren't specific tactical things. We, we ultimately ended up changing how, you know, community off offer, you know, like how, how do we show up in the community and how do we, you know, and, and some of that is actually some substantial changes of putting people without guns in the community and building, you know, neighborhood alliances and having, uh, they even have uh, donuts on the corners and different things like that, just so community members could know their local officers. And, you know, all those things are breaking down those barriers that were so much is, is the us and them. Um, where the reality is a lot of the officers, you know, lived in that community. We're part of that community. Um, I also think it's very important that it's not just one community's issue, you know, and that's where, you know, we start off with this issue that, that obviously was the African-American community, but it's really, it's all communities, you know, and it's, and we all have to kind of stand for doing a better job in some of these areas. Uh, And I think that's the platform that we are have, you know, we have an opportunity to kind of be part of is, is today is we can solve really big problems. We can think bigger than we have ever in the past. And it's important for all of us as leaders to do that because no longer can we stand where the few people kind of make decisions for all the rest. That's the part that's been disrupted in this last 10 years. And that's where, you know, we see the democratization of every single industry of every single thing is like really giving people that never had a voice, they have a voice and, they need to use it to, to get the rights that they have never had. We need to figure out how to hear and facilitate that so that we actually create, we create that change. It's not going to happen overnight, but we need to create that longer term vision. Again, I go back to exponential theory is, um, there, you know, we can't right a wrong overnight, but we certainly can start moving in the right direction and show support and obviously listen and move things in the right direction, which, um, I think we are in a lot of cases. I think there's still some others that we have to work on, but that's the, you know, part of it is, is that we're all diverse. We have different opinions and makes the world interesting. If we all thought alike, looked alike, had the same religion, it's probably pretty boring. So, you know, we should embrace this and and really enjoy it and honestly spend time among, you know, amongst different people, which is, uh, you know, a habit I have is really to get outside of people that are in my socioeconomic, my religion, race, all those different things because it helps me grow as a person to understand, you know, and like I said, not empathy, but really having a rational compassion for, for a different viewpoint, because it helps me grow as a person. It makes me a better leader, makes me make better decisions because I think about all the different people that I interact with instead of thinking about, you know, just the people at the country club or, (laughs) you know, the the people that live in my neighborhood or the people that go to my church. It's easy to get trapped up in that bubble and, and, think that the values that are shared within my little micro community at the country club or at the gym or at the church or wherever it is, are the broader or and more widely shared values and they're often not. It's easy to think that the language that we use in those small communities is what's what maybe should be shared and should be used um, 
more broadly and it's often not it's it's simply different so well and that's hearing you talk like that difference between public and private perception right like what we're willing to say public we we won't you know we may have privately different feelings and i I think a lot of our political changes are, are based on you know this fact that we're not congruent you know publicly to what our own private opinions are or you know we vote differently than what people think we would because we have these ingrained biases that uh, yeah, are people are afraid to be sure. authentic a lot of times. I, I know I've done that at, at times. I don't wish I, I wish I could say I've been authentic in every interaction I've ever had, but that's not true. You should be less authentic. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know what that is, Aaron. You know what that now was. Now I know where you get it, Sanger. It's, it's that it's was the value. Thing. That's that. That's the revelation of the values of someone who grew up in the '80s, <laughs> where you couldn't be authentic. <laughs> Where you had to lie about who you were everywhere you went. Yeah, uh, no, I, it's, a, it's a changing generation. I hang around a lot gotcha. of We got good at it. Gotcha. We got good at it. I love the generational debate. Yeah, you got, to be you got good at pretending to be something. Yeah. <laughs> that's, shit on that. <laughs> that's my skill, man. That's, that's all we had. <laughs> you got to... You got to just, you know, you don't have to be your whole self all the time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying act in public the way you act in your bedroom. Okay. Certainly. But be just real. And a lot of people are afraid to be real. They're really, they're scared. They're, I think we're scared to be rejected for who we truly are. But and, I, but I uh, think that, when, when working with leaders, I think that's the, the skill that leaders that resonate the most and that, that can make mistakes are the re- leaders that are real up front. You know, at the end of the day, if you see a leader that's real, you, you, you can have, you know, compassion for the decisions they make and they make mistakes. And if they're authentic with it, then you can move past them. The problem is, is we try to sweep every mistake under the rug and the reality we're human. And the one thing about being human is we're messy and messy relationships, messy, everything. And it, there's never going to be a perfect world. Um, and we just got to continue to move forward and grow from what we learn. And that's, that's the path I take and what I take with, you know, people I facilitate and, you know, create buyer processes with or whatever, it, but it, it, but it is an important part today that I think, you know, more than ever being authentic really resonates with people. And that's, you know, if you look at viral videos, a lot of times it's because it's either inauthentic or that it's really authentic. It's not in between. Yeah. That's, oh, that's You true. can't be, you that's... can't straddle the median on being authentic. I love yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, if you if you can't fake it, you know authenticity, then you're lost. I think. If you can't fake it, <laughs> <laughs> at least you're authentic to being being that way. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for being here, Aaron. Where can people um, where can people find you and and get a hold of your book? You can find me on my website, AaronBearer.com, A A R O N B A R E dot com, and my books, Exponential Theory, the power of thinking big it's on amazon and i think it's 33 percent off right now so good yeah the the authenticity there um john you just you I, i'm not gonna forget that because you you like you have a you you have a skill in in presenting the um the the boomer values <laughs> I wonder why that is. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that it's not a negative. I just it is what it is. And I, growing up, I had to find out, like as I got older, like that's not always that, that people not, thought differently. 
Yeah, well, no, um, I, I knew that way before you did. Um, <laughs> to find out that, you know, the values that were present in this generation are not always going to, they're not, they're not necessarily the right and true values and the values that are present in this community of this city, they're not always the right and true values. And that it doesn't mean you throw them all away either. What are you, are you, you're saying that the values that I, I ascribe to weren't the right and true values? Um, yeah, well, yeah. Like yeah. what? Like, okay. So I think that there is a very high value of being like people won't be, vul- there are some things that you just wouldn't say, right. In a client meeting. Okay. Like, Oh, I'm just, I'm going to be very like proper and very professional and very, you know, I would never curse in a client meeting. I would never talk about oh, this type of story in course. a client meeting. Oh, I do that all the time. Really? Yeah. If something's bullshit, I just tell a client it's bullshit. Like, why do I? That's how I talk. Okay, then don't. Yeah. And you, even the way you said you don't do it, you said it with judgment. Oh, yeah. I meant to. I know you did. <laughs> hey, if something's, if something's BS, you just, why would I not? Why would I not say it? Why would I pretend like I don't say that word? <laughs> to me, that's being authentic. No, I, I think you got a point, Singer. I think there, there's a, you know, real conundrum though is, is really the younger generation is having, I'll call it an avatar, an online presence versus your real presence. And those are truly inauthentic today and they're getting further and further apart and, and really causing mental health issues. So I think, you know, older That's generations, older generations, you know, and I, I, I consider myself part of that, uh, gen, gen X, I guess you could say, um, you know, we didn't have social media. Like, thank God we didn't have social media because I couldn't imagine all the stuff that I did that was just, you know, and, and I have this conversation. I have a, a kid that works for me that's 27. I'm 48. So we have a 20-year gap. Um, not necessarily father-son relationship, but it, it, it yeah. has this generational context. But it's we often have this conversation of just the different perspectives that we have that push us that, you know, the, the, how we make decisions and how we show up in the world and how we would act in a meeting and everything. And, um, you know, it's just, they're, they're very, very different. And there's a lot to be learned on both sides of that. And that's, that's what I've kind of embraced, um, is this, this new generation is I've, I don't spend a lot of time online because I don't think it's of value to me to a younger person. I totally see why they do, but if they get caught up in it, and it becomes their identity or they, they, they have this dopamine rush every time they get a like or whatever, they're starting to live an inauthentic life, even though, you know, their pictures may be authentic or inauthentic, you know, with filters and, you know, food and everything to make their world look glamorous to all their friends and everything. But the reality is it still goes to people that are authentic in person are the ones that are winning in the world, whether they're young or old or, it does not matter. And I think that's the part is the online world is, is a whole nother world that people can, if it's important for groups of people to be in that, um, it's important to, to live in that. For me, it's, you know, when you get in front of people is when you're really going to make decisions and make money, um, have good relationships, you know, find a spouse, all those things. It's because that you're yourself, that you find who you are. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's a good about leadership and making decisions is when you actually become where you share your decisions publicly of whatever your private thoughts are, people actually will respect you more than you think. I often do this just to challenge like other leaders is like, I know I don't think the same way as some leaders, 
and I'll challenge them by thinking differently. And it's funny how easily people are persuaded when someone, because they're like, oh, is this the new public opinion? Then I need to agree with him. And then I make the point is like, well, what's your <laughs> does, does everyone agree with Aaron? Am I wrong? Am I in the minority now? <laughs> it, it really is the loudest yeah. voice in the room that often persuades, you know, and that, that well, oftentimes yeah, is in the CEO and it's true, it's, you know, in a boardroom or a yeah, know, board of directors. For sure. It's someone different, yeah. but. Hey, hey, Aaron, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. My takeaway from talking with Aaron was when he was talking about really facilitating the decision making. You remember that? And he was talking about how the first thing that he has people do when they're coming to sort of, he didn't say consensus, but a, de- a decision to action was establishing a vision, like where we tried to go, understanding the language, which I thought was a good point. I mean, I've talked with people who uh, really will be in conversations with people and these people are using technical language or acronyms or concepts they don't understand. And it puts them in a sort of an anxious position. So uh, understanding the common vision, understanding the language, and then looking at providing clarity. And so he, he really saw his role was just making sure everybody understood. He even asked that question, you know, how do you interpret that? Yeah. So it was allowing sort of these groups and you know, a lot of his work was around group decision-making. And so that was sort of the takeaway I had is, is really facilitating clear communication in that. My biggest takeaway was when he said he's not looking to achieve consensus when helping groups make decisions. He's not trying to get them to have consensus. He's just trying to get them to take action. And that's huge because I think a lot of times I know I've been in group decision-making processes that didn't go very well. And it felt like we were always trying to get everyone to agree. We could have nine out of 10 people be on board and we'd have one person who, Oh, I don't really, I don't think so. And we, well, what do we have to do to convince this 10th person? Well, dang, we got nine out of 10. Let's move on. We probably could have moved on. When we were at six out of 10. What are we doing? <laughs> Let's go. That was a huge takeaway for me. Yeah. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of decidedly make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.